hello to the final, well, almost the final episode of season three. And guess what number episode it is, Troy? What number is it? 69. 69, dude. Bill and Ted's excellent adventure. Remember that? Totally. Totally. And that's where I was hoping you would take it. This is the finale. The finale of I Was Teenage Fundamentalist for season three. Big year, big year this year, wasn't it? So last year we did, which was our first year, we did two seasons in one, 20 episodes per season. And then this season we ran for a whole year. We started out weekly. We got our ambitions mixed up with our abilities. And then we went, okay, let's let's just pull back a little bit and go fortnightly, which, you know, I think we said in a recent episode, that probably hit that that formula that works for us. But it's been a long year. I mean, pretty much it's going to be about 30 episodes for this year. And it's been a heavy year, hasn't it? It has. And I was a bit funny about going fortnightly because I felt like we were just being a bit weak. You know what I mean? It's like, we can do this every week, but we can't. So, you know, 14, 14 nights between episodes is enough for me. And hopefully people are okay with that too. Because I get a feeling that if we're getting tired and we're getting overwhelmed, perhaps people listening are too. I don't know, maybe not. But I think, you know, once a fortnight for therapy is enough. Yeah, I agree. And look, you look at a lot of other episodes, they're fortnightly at best, um, particularly the independents like we are. And there's many that, that are monthly or whenever they feel like it. And I remember um, a couple of people that we spoke to throughout this year. I think one of them, Phil Drysdale, he just did it whenever he wanted, really, didn't he? But now he's taken a break, an indefinite break. He has. And I think that is is very much reflective of how much hard work goes into this, but also the emotional toll that it can take as well. Agreed. Hey, speaking of emotional tolls... We found out about the Australian Podcast Awards because people that aren't in our group wouldn't nec- or are following us on socials wouldn't actually know how we did at the Australian Podcast Awards. So let's just let's just talk about what we did do. We made the top six in the country for current affairs podcasts, which is really cool. And then we didn't win. We didn't win, and you know we were there. Uh, for me, I flew up to Sydney. You were there for work, <laughs> Troy. <laughs> That's right. We we flew and went there and shit and didn't win. It was like fucking. It was weird. It, it was sort of weird. Look, we didn't win, and that's okay. That's totally cool. It was a um, – Can I really- can I be all sort of Brene Brown listening and make myself vulnerable and everything? I was disappointed, and, and I don't mean that to say that other people didn't deserve to win or that I'm bitter or angry or anything like that. Not at all. But I was disappointed that we didn't win because I wanted to win. Oh, thanks, Brené. So we'll be the Brené and Brian show from now on. That's going to be good. I, I was actually going to say I was disappointed. It's all good. We didn't win. I was disappointed. But we came away, I think, with a, a sense of we were doing a good thing. Yeah, that's right. It made us reflect. I think we, we were talking about while we were there, there was there were some fantastic podcasts that got up, but there were, a lot of them were commercial. They were corporate sort of. They were backed by big media companies or networks. and Yeah, they were. And, and I think we continued to do this with integrity and really try and vulnerability, definitely a bit of vulnerability. And in the end, we're doing a good thing. We get some really good feedback when we posted stuff on the page about how we went in the awards. You know, people gave us some really good feedback and encouragement 
and it, it was all good. It was all good in the end because it just reminded us of why we started to do. At the same time, it's nice that we even made the top six. You know, the fact that they counted us in there, this little independent podcast about people that have come out of Pentecostalism and megachurch was great. So so I think it's it's cool that we got as far as we did, disappointed that we didn't win, but that's okay. There's always next year or the year after that or the year after that. And we really need a category in the Australian Podcast Awards, don't we, for sort of like spirituality or or something like that, because we didn't really fit in any of the categories. Yeah, if they made a category, dudes that are fucked up, I reckon we'd probably... Dudes that are fucked up by church, I reckon we'd win. Yeah, we'd be there, 100%. It's been a good year besides that as well. I mean, all those incredible people that we've interviewed, I mean, I I was looking back through who we'd spoken to this year and I completely forgot that it was this year. People like um, Frank Schaefer. Well, Frank Schaefer was amazing. He was very cool and I think he set the tone for the year. You know, he was a, a big name, international, came in told us how it was, dropped a whole heap of names of people that he, he'd once loved and now hates. It was a great way to start the season, I thought. Yeah, it was. It was a, it was a really good launch off. And, you know, we, we interweaved with our stories throughout where we both became Baptocostals. That was fun. Uh, we spoke about nepotism and, and definitely a focus of that was Hillsong. And we're very much seeing Hillsong still in the news with Brian Houston's trial alive and well. You know, speaking of that nepotism episode, I thought it was really funny that when Brian most recently came back and said, oh, you know, I was going to retire anyway, and I was going to give it all to my daughter and her son. And it was just like, dude, that is not what you're supposed to say. That's that's the nepotism episode. Are you not listening to the podcast? And then I thought, maybe he's not listening to the podcast. But he was going to just, he was like, oh, I was going to step away, but I was going to give it to probably my least able and talented child who was easy to manipulate. And, and and still run the show. And it's like, dude, that's the whole point of that episode. But more than that, it's like just because she has your, or once upon a time had your name or has your DNA, doesn't mean you should give the whole fucking movement to her. I think you're forgetting how nepotism works. Of course, that's what they're meant to do. That's exactly the blueprint of how they operate. Well, of course. Yeah, so you're forgetting um, another episode, which definitely I think triggered both of us, and we had to do a reflective episode. Was the Philip Yancey one? <laughs> the Philip Yancey episode, yeah. And I showed him my tattoo. Remember, uh, it says Grace. It's in Chinese. Totally fanboying. But I, I, I listened. I re-listened to that episode actually only a few weeks ago, and I'm happy with it. I was actually still happy with it. I, I, I wish I'd showed him my herpes scars rather than my tattoo. I reckon that would have been better. I don't have herpes scars, but if I did, I'd show them to Philip Yancey. I think you do have them. I'd show them to Brian Houston. I'd say, here, look at my herpes scars. Where's your room key now, Brian? Where's your room key now? He may even look. You just you never, <laughs> you never know. Who else did we speak? A couple of journos. We had a couple of journos on this year. We had Al Hardy and Tom Tilly. Yes, yep. They, they were they were both really cool to have. I was very excited about the Tom Tilly episode. And for what it's worth, occasionally still chat with Tom Tilly. You do. So I'm 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 in there, mate. I don't need to go to the podcast awards. I'm already in with Tom Tilly. He's got a, he's got his own podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. Tom, when are you gonna have us on? We had you on. Yeah, exactly. Have us on yours. Yeah, that'd be really good. Although his is all newsy. His podcast is all newsy. It's not really, you know, self help and it's not like his book. Although we could be maybe in the like the updated version of his book, he could have a chapter on Troy and Brian. 
<laughs> I think he, I think he should, and he could then because it was speaking in tongues, and uh, I think he could refer to our speaking in tongues episode from last year. I think he could. You're right. You're right. You know, someone else that we had on that was really cool was Dr. Daryl Ray yes. from Recovering from Religion, and I don't think I realized at the time how much that Im- episode was going to impact me. And if people haven't already noticed, I now put a link to Recovering from Religion in every single episode that's been released. So if you need help, this is where you can go. So I I, I just want to say I think that organisation is amazing. Also a special shout out to Sherry D'Souza, who is the Australian rep of that, recovering from religion. Yeah, and it'd be good to have Sherry on and, and give a bit of an update in the future as well because she also went over to the States this year to go to some of the recovering from religion conferences and and some events that they had so it'd be fantastic to hear a bit more I mean it's it's something we hear quite often isn't it that there's not many places for people to go to find help to talk to people who might relate or be able to help them navigate whatever their deconstruction may look like because everyone's deconstruction looks very different and people may not even realize they're in the middle of deconstructing so where do they go recovering from religion and the secular therapy project they're all things that, and resources that can certainly help people. Yeah, because there's no doubt that there's people that are talented as therapists, but they don't necessarily understand the context. So it's good to have specialization in that space. Another thing that we did a lot this year was the crossover episodes. So we had quite a few, didn't we? We had Indoctrination Podcast with Rachel. We did. Who else did we have? Clint Haycock. Yep. And Clint as well. From uh, Mindshift, Mindshift Podcast. From Mindshift, we had Cheers to Leaving. Yep, that was fun. And there are some other people that we have regular chats with now on social media, aren't they? We enjoy those women. They're very funny. They are very funny. And they're as inappropriate as us, which is fantastic. And we, yep. we relate to that. And the, the other crossover, which is a crossover which will cross over seasons, is one that we, we just did recently, wasn't it? Yeah, with the Graceful Atheist. Yes, That's that was... Um, David Ames. David Ames. Well, we dropped David's episode for us in season three, and it will come out a bit of a delay, but but everything works well. Everything comes to those who wait, doesn't it? Yeah, good things come to those who wait. I think that's one of the ones those one of those scriptural verses that isn't actually in the Bible. The other one was, "Do I stay Christian?" with Brian McLaren. That was a good one too. I th- I really enjoyed interviewing him. It was a good one. We both decided no. Yeah, we both decided. No. I knew that before I went in. Mm. to be honest. But I really liked the way that he gave me that freedom, you know, like as a Christian, he said, and for some people, they shouldn't go back. And that's me. I don't think I could go back even if I wanted to. I think I'm just too damaged. Oh, fuck. No, I couldn't go back. Um, and, and, you know, we had lots of, we had Dave Andrews on about, you know, the Christian anarchist. We had Tara Jean Stevens talking about season three of Heaven Bent, which was a cracker. If you haven't, if you haven't yet listened, go and listen. And we had the Troy Story and Troy Story 2, which is really where you did sort of close off a, a fairly big and important chapter in your life in that, didn't you? Yeah, that was the end of my marriage and the end of my church attendance. I still hadn't thrown the towel in with the religion. But yeah, I think there's been a couple that have been really hard to record. There was the rejected episode in the season before. There was, you know, goodbye great big AOG and fucked over at Country Town AOG. But this one was this one was really heavy. And, you know, you can testify, Brian, you saw me, I was, I was rocked. I think that was probably the hardest episode to do was Troy Story 2. And I tried very hard to be sensitive 
to my ex-wife and to the people that were involved. And it was interesting, Brian, because someone reached out to us recently, let's not say who, but someone reached out to us recently and was quite upset about the way that we had spoken about them in an episode, not my ex-wife at all, but it was someone that complained about the way that we treated them. And someone else that day happened to send me a quote that said, if you wanted me to speak kindly about you, perhaps you should have treated me better. This is my story to tell. We had a, a, a couple of other people come in and tell their stories. Also, we had Bree come in and, and tell a story about being a female fundamentalist. We had Andrew telling his story about being gay, a great big AOG. Like, really, that was seriously the heaviest episode that I felt this season. I mean, the the pain there was incredibly real for Andrew. Mm. And it was, you know, we we know Andrew, we know Andrew well, but it was a, a difficult story for him to tell. You could feel and hear that pain. Yeah, I think that may have been the most important episode of the season, if not the podcast so far. That's not to downplay anybody else's story that's come on and told, you know, what happened to them. But I, I just think that was a really important story to tell. Yeah, it was. It was an important one, a heavy one, and we are, we are certainly glad. And a lot of people resonated with that, so we're glad that he did tell that story. And, and, and I think it helped. We had people reach out to us and say, oh, my God, can you pass on to Andrew, you know, my thanks for him telling that story. But also people saying, I hadn't really understood about people's experience of being gay and how it impacted them within Christian experience until I listened to Andrew's story. And that's notwithstanding the fact that we had a good friend, Anthony Van Brown, in season one come in and tell their story. I think it's people telling the same story, different people telling the same story. It just resonates with different people. So it's always great to to hear those stories and know that you are going to hit on what some people just need to hear and something triggers for them or the, the the coin falls for them. Agreed. The thing that struck me with that was how much people saw it as the devil. You know, when Andrew was telling his story that they started speaking to the devil as if, you know, homosexuality is just, you're just the worst of the worst. You're controlled by the devil. You are almost a demon yourself. I just felt no wonder we were so shut down to seeing them as people because we literally demonized them, right? Like the true, in the true sense of that word, we literally demonized them to the point where we stopped seeing them as human and saw them as subhuman. Yeah, it, it absolutely horrible and shameful. I mean, I often think back about the way that I treated some people when I was a Christian because I saw everything as, as Satan or Satan's influence or anything like that, any way that you could disassociate reality from uh, what was happening, whatever way you had to deal with it. I guess you dealt with it in that way, but it was, it was something that I look back on and I go, oh, fuck, how damaging is that? Yeah, yeah. Exactly. So we own our shit. We own our own shit in the way that we were too. It, it's funny, isn't it? Because I think sometimes people see what we're doing and they think, oh, you know, you're just having a go at the Pentecostals. And it's like, yes, but we're having a go at ourselves as Pentecostals. It's not just about having a go at other people. Like we're owning this and saying we were wrong. So it's not just about, we, you know, we're sitting in an ivory tower. No, we were there in the moat with everybody else and we call ourselves out. So yeah, keep that in mind when you listen to the podcast that it's not just about the podcast is called I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist, not You Were a Teenage Fundamentalist. Anyway. Yeah, and look, we're not here to please everyone. 
that that's just the reality of of doing a podcast like this. We will bring our own opinions and experiences into it because that's what we have and that's what we're speaking from. But we're also bringing in some experts who do talk about this stuff too. So it, it, you can't just discredit what we're saying because it's just us and just our experience. There's broader context and there's broader um, experiences and knowledge and expertise that these other people bring to the table as well. Yeah. So on that note, do you think we're a bit jaded compared to when we started this? Or do you think we're just being more forthright and saying it out loud? It's probably for me, it's given me a little bit more confidence to say those things out loud. I think people who've listened from day dot to now would 100% agree that we've both come to places of more certainty around particular things. Like for me, I'm more certain about what I believed back then and what I believed now and the chasm between it. Very, very certain about being involved in a cult. And that was something that we only really came to late last year or this year, late last year, I think it was. Yeah, it was the end of season two. Yeah, so look, I think for me that that certainty is a confidence, but also I think it's been a therapeutic journey over the last almost 70 episodes to get to a point of you've heard us live processing this shit, people. <laughs> That's what we've been doing. It's a live processing and a, and you've you've just been sitting there listening to our therapy a lot of the time. That's right. I mean, even now, this reflection, it's it's happening in real time. We haven't scripted this. Yeah, and look, that's probably something that we've, as we've come towards the end of this season, we've been scripting things less, I think, because we've been a bit more confident in what we're doing, but probably also very tired. Yeah, I think there's a little bit of tiredness (laughs) in there as well. There is. Yeah, look, it's been been a, a big, big year this year, but also it's it's all compounded from 70 episodes, so... Who knows what next year holds? We might even tell you that at the end of this this episode and tell you where we might be heading next year, what we're going to be looking at. Yeah, I might move. I might move in prophecy and tell everyone <laughs> what's coming next year. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm going to start a Christian band. Yay, verily! Yay, verily! The Lord would say, "Next year will be season four. <laughs> hey, so dude, let's jump into these questions because we're already well into this episode. This, this reflection was important. So let's jump into these questions. Why don't you fire away with question one? Alrighty. So question one, do you still think Pentecostalism is a cult? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. That came from Anonymous, by the way. Um, I'm glad you asked that question because I was thinking about that recently and thinking, no, I don't think Pentecostalism is a cult. And here's why. Because a cult is a group of people not a set of beliefs. And so I think it would be better to say many Pentecostal churches are cults than saying Pentecostalism is a cult. I think there are Pentecostal churches out there that are not a cult. And I think the majority of them probably are. So I think, you know, you can have an experience of a Pentecostal church that could be quite positive. I I think that is entirely possible. But I don't want to let anyone off the hook there because I think the majority of them are, in fact, cults because I think the the beliefs lend themselves to that. I was thinking about it the other day that, you know, you don't hear about people leaving the football team and having to deprogram or deconstruct. You know, oh, I left left karate and I've got to deconstruct or, you know, I left the, the quilting group and I have to deconstruct. No, 
I think, you know, deconstruct is just the modern way of saying deprogram. So so I think that most Pentecostal churches are probably cults, but to say that Pentecostalism is or isn't a cult is actually the wrong question to ask. So thank you, Anonymous, for asking that question. I know, it was really good. It was as if I was prepared for it. It's as if you were. It's as if we had all these questions sitting here and that we could um, think about them before. But I agree. I'm not going to add anything to that one. I completely agree. All right, so I'll ask you the next question, Uncle Brain. After all these episodes you've done, why do you think you join these churches? Oh, look, myself, and, and this is in my story, I think all peppered along the way and also in the very early stuff, belonging. For me, I think it was a place of belonging. It was a place of safety. It was something that gave me certainty in an insecure and uncertain time. So, you know, I was 17. I had a really good friendship group. Like, I, I had good mates. So I, I had a reasonably good family life, but... I think within me and deep within myself, I was quite insecure and as many 17-year-olds are, but I also had this, always this deeper sense of what else is there? What What is there out there? Is There has to be something bigger. And so I had all those questions always going around in my head. I, I've shared that I had those books on mysteries, unexplained mysteries and the unknown. So I always took an int- interest in that sort of stuff and still do to a certain degree. And this came along. One of the things that you said that we talked about offline, or at least in terms of recording, was that you said that you had quite a free reign as a kid and that this brought you some boundaries. And yeah. that maybe as a, as, a, as a young person, you were craving the boundaries even though you didn't realise you were. Yeah, 100%. I, I had zero boundaries as a kid, zero. So I I really did do what I want, wanted when I wanted from a very young age. And uh, that was that was the effect of being the last of many, many children in a very large family. So I think that definitely had an effect. I mean, there's lots of psychological theory around this as well, that kids need boundaries. Boundaries create safety. So having these boundaries, they probably did create some safety for me. And, you know, as I've said many times before, it wasn't an entirely bad experience for me. There were some great things that came out of my time in what I recognize now as a cult. Um, And even after that, when I went into a more of a moderate progressive uh, evangelical space, I think it was, um, there's some good things from it. But Definitely, that's what led me in. I don't have any of those leftover bits in my life right now. So for me, I I don't need that anymore. When I reflected, Brian, on why I joined, I thought back to when I did join. And my family had just come back from America because my father had been in the military, right? And so he was based at the embassy in Washington, D.C., the Australian embassy. And so when we came back after four years living in the US, we had full American accents. We had come back from just having hot and cold running everything to being stationed in Canberra where, you know, there was no MTV, there was no cable, there was, you know, very few people had an Atari, you know, all that kind of stuff. And also having an American accent in Canberra at that stage, it was not smiled upon. And so I felt really lost when, when I got back and, you know, I don't blame anybody for that. That was just the, the way it was, right? We were just 
in a military family and we had to move all the time. But I was talking to some other military kids that we grew up with and they said they all felt it when they came back from America because it was just like this massive cultural difference. And so, you know, you've joked before about, Troy, you should have been an American. Well, I was. I was for four years, you know, in, 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 my, in my sort of forming tween stage. And I think having that sense of identity missing, I would never have said before this podcast that it was about community and identity to the to the extreme that I now see that that's exactly what it was. And it was about fitting in. It was about feeling welcome because whilst I was kind of being rejected at school because I was a yank wank, as they called me, to all of a sudden be accepted by this culture, this Pentecostal culture that sort of looked up to America because that's where it had all come, come from. And so there certainly wasn't any sort of pissing on me for being an American. But I think they welcomed me really quickly and they brought me in and said, yeah, we'll accept you. But as I said to you before, Brian, it was a bait and switch because as soon as I got in there and plugged in enough, then they got rid of the acceptance and it was far more judgment than I'd got from from my school friends. So I think that's why I joined. I think, yes, I was interested in the in the mystical like you and, you know, I'd been watching the Nostradamus and watching The Exorcist and all that. I was, you know, that was all going on. But I think, yeah, ultimately, and this is Cults 101, that there was a vulnerability and there was a sense of community and sense of belonging that was just given to me. I didn't have to earn it. You get love bombed. Love bombed, exactly right. Got you in with the love bomb. All right, so next one is coming to you. And I I know, I can feel it in my heart what you're going to say to this one, but did any episodes in particular trigger either of you? To you first. A lot of them triggered me, Brian. You know, there were so many. I mean, I've already talked about some of that. I talked about the Andrew episode. I think, of course, you know, there was the Troy Story 2 one that, that did my head in. Yeah, I don't think I have anything else to add to that. What about you? Were there any that triggered you? Yeah, look, funnily enough, when I when I re-listened to the Dave Andrews episode, it was a bit triggery. Nothing tragic. Probably the one that rocked me the most was the Cairns Christ one. And for me, I, I'm not going to dig into the detail of why, but there was some heavy things happening in my life at the time. During that time, I think it was, I didn't recognize it. I was deconstructing 100%, but I, I didn't, I certainly didn't, didn't recognize it as a deconstruction. I just knew that there's a lot of hurt there. I couldn't go to church. I couldn't do that stuff. I couldn't relate. I was disconnecting. My world had got bigger through, you know, tertiary studies, through my career, and I I was disconnecting from it. There was stuff happening in my family life at the time. It was it was the very early days of my marriage breaking down. Even though at the time I didn't know that, that in hindsight absolutely that's what was happening so i went away from that episode going wow there's a lot of stuff happening there and it was it was pretty intense and reflected on it and you do all those things where you beat yourself up and go did i do everything i could have there did i do everything right and of course i didn't there's no way i did but you you go back on that and go as Cher said if I could turn back time. And there was some, <laughs> just some, <laughs> a picture of me in a little tape suit on a cannon. But it was, it, it was that sort of stuff where I went away from that and, and it probably just made me 
go into a bit of a slump for a day or two reflecting on that stuff. But I, I soon got out because um, I realised that this was stuff I had worked through. It just took me back there. Do you remember Rachel from Cheers to Leaving? And hi, Rachel, if you're listening. Do you remember that she said she was deconstructing, but she didn't know that's what it was and she didn't know that there was terms for it? I think that's true of a lot of us because we're immersed in the church world. And so we don't know that that's what we're doing. As a matter of fact, in church, it's called backsliding is what it's called. And it's it's not something to celebrate or embrace. It's something to be afraid of. So I think you're not alone in that. Brian, that you start deconstructing and you don't know what you're doing. You don't have the framework. You don't have the language. You don't have the emotion. You're not even encouraged to embrace it. So I, I think that makes perfect sense. Yeah, it's weird. Weird, weird times. Um, definitely the backsliding. <laughs> that's that's uh, 100% where I was beating myself up at the time because I wasn't going to church. I wasn't engaging. I wasn't part of what my family was doing. And I, I kept looking at myself and beating myself up and going, you're just backslidden and that just puts you in a deeper hole. So that was the one I think that for me that took me back to a place of um, deep, deep reflection. Yeah, well, maybe that's an episode we could do, backsliding. Just call it that and just start talking about that. I think I think that would be a good one, actually. I was an expert at that. All right, next question. Any pushback this year? Oh, yeah, where do we start? I think it's been probably the most impactful year in audience growth and the amount of people, you know, contacting us off their own bat and reaching out and going, we're really connected. Thank you. Lots and lots of that. However, there's also been, I've had someone reach out to me and uh, try and send me videos of a preacher that I had to listen to because of they were concerned for my soul and that I was going to hell and they'd be praying for me. And it was, it was interesting. I, 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 often thought about someone reaching out to me and and giving me a bit of a sermon on that and thinking, how would I take it? But I, I took it okay. And I actually was quite comfortable with it because I don't believe in hell. I don't believe in heaven. I don't believe in a salvation that is, you know, that was preached to us and that we were preaching to other people. I don't believe in that. And I don't think there's any evidence for that. So for me, I just sat in that place of going, yeah, what you're saying is is bullshit and good for you. Keep your opinion to yourself. But, and if I'm going to hell and prayer really works, then get down, start praying for me and, and that'll work. If it doesn't, your prayer's a bit rubbish. So I, I don't know. It was, that was a bit of pushback. We also did have uh, had that person recently reach out to me and say that we were quite disrespectful towards them when we were speaking about them, even though we didn't identify them. So there was that pushback. Can you think of any other pushback, Troy? Yeah, there's there's been a little bit. It's interesting that the pushback is not so much didn't so much affect me as much as who brought it, and thinking about who brought yours and who brought mine. I think there's a bit of a theme there, but people that mattered in the past that maybe don't matter quite so much anymore sort of threw me back into that place. I would like to say that, as you said, a couple of days later, you sort of bounce back, but no, I I found myself back in the mentality and also in sort of a fear state around, should I be saying this? Shouldn't I be saying this? And you know, Brian, I can be quite neurotic at times and you know, I was ringing you and saying, oh, you know, and you, you were sort of calming me down. But I think 
you know, it was like when we released the Jeff Bullock episode. I nearly had a panic attack that day because it was like, you're just not allowed to say this stuff out loud. And more than we're saying it out loud, we're saying it out loud and putting it on the internet, for God's sake, to thousands of people in a weekend. So I think the pushback, the fact that it was the the people that used to tell me what I could and couldn't say, coming to me now, telling me what I can and can't say, really threw me. But after a little while, I started to think, nah, fuck you. There's a reason why you're not in my life anymore. And and that's that. So yeah, there was pushback and it did rock me, but God bless them. Moving on. Moving on up and moving on out. Next question. Now, flattering, um, but we may have to pass over this one quite quickly. I'd like to ask you guys how you both stay looking so young, given you're both in your 50s, of course, and what are your tips for skincare? Well, can I just say that my parents, both of them, looked very, very young until one day it was if like a a switch was thrown and all of a sudden they looked their age. So I think that's what's going to happen to me. So I think it's just good genes and not Levi's or Edwin's, the genes that come, you know, biologically. Genes with a G. Look, I, I do moisturise daily, so I'm, I'm not going to really? lie. I do. I actually yeah, do. Yeah, I don't. Yeah. I don't. And my wife tells me I need to, but I don't. Mm, I don't I, I've got very sun-damaged skin to being a child growing up in, uh, in Australia, always out in the sun, and also lived in far north Queensland for 11 years. So my skin is screwed. I'll, I'll probably hit 60 and look about 90, but whatever. If I look like a brown old shriveled scrotum when I'm 60, so be it. I don't, I don't think you need to worry too much because I think the Lord's coming back soon. So True, yeah. true actually. Yeah, a lot of the predictions are 2030. So yeah, let's see how that, go, how that one goes. All right, shriveled scrotum. Next question is for you. How did fundamentalism affect the way your marriage ended and the eventual divorce? I know how extreme the AOG position on divorce and remarriage is, and that's from um, Kitty Cat Patty, Instagram. So thank you, Kitty. Um, Look, I wasn't in the AOG when I divorced. I was in a progressive church, very, very much out the other side of it, almost ready to leave. And as I've shared a few times, it was the point that I chose to leave then. So I did I did leave at that point. So I wasn't too phased about divorce. I personally didn't have any guilt about it because I've been de- deconstructing for years. The way it affected me after then was I probably went a little bit wild for a while because I was freed from the shackles. And I just, yeah, I went out and I, I partied for a, a couple of years and I, I did lots of things. And so from from that, I think it, you know, it was good for me though. Ultimately, I think it was good for me because it helped me shake away some of the, the guilt, the unnecessary guilt. Troy, how about you? Well, I would, I would say, please go back and listen to Troy's story too, the episode. Maybe this question was, was actually put up before that episode. As I said, I didn't have the theology to back up my decision to leave before I left. So I suffered a lot of guilt a lot of guilt and it took me a really long time to to come to terms with that and i think that's something i'll unpack as we go on telling our stories sounds good next one is to you from peanut baby baby i've never feared death because the soul continues 
I'm a recovering Catholic. Do you believe in a soul? And if so, what do you think happens to the soul when the body dies if there is no heaven? And there is a third part to that question that says, and if not, was and is it difficult to adjust to death being the full and final end? Heavy question. When I was an atheist, um, which I may still well be, who knows, but when I was certain in my atheism is a better way to put it, I was convinced that that was it. That's that's it. it. We die. We end. The end. But when my mother died a couple of years back, just before we started the podcast actually, I was quite thrown because I didn't want it to end. I didn't want her to end. I wanted to believe that I was going to see her again. I had a couple of experiences that I was fairly certain at the time were spiritual experiences and perhaps they were, perhaps they weren't Uh, because the mind is very powerful, especially when it's going through trauma like that, you know, of of losing someone that you love because I really do love my mum very, very much. So my, my answer to that setting that scene is to say, I really don't know. I want there to be something more. You know, I want to know that if, when I go, I'll see my kids again. They'll see me again. I'll see my wife. I'll see my mum. I've read near-death experience stories, and I find them quite encouraging. But then, you know, we've we've believed a lot of stuff, and we know that people can present portions of stories rather than the whole story or make things up. It it just happens. So I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. And I think I'm sort of preparing myself to be ready for it to end and be done. And if there's something on the other side, wouldn't that be nice? What I don't believe though, is I don't believe there's a hell because I just think philosophically it makes no sense. And I also think that there's a lot of evidence scripturally, if you were to believe the Bible, that it's not actually, it's it's a misinterpretation, things that were built on later on, if you, if you believe the Bible, which I don't. So that's neither here nor there. But I think when I watched my mum pass, she was ready. She wasn't freaking out. And I hear that that's true of a lot of people. But I also hear stories of people that who are religious who are freaking out. And yet it seems to be oftentimes the people that aren't that are more ready to embrace death. So, yeah, I again, I don't have an answer. That's just my thoughts. I think it'll be great if there is something and if it's nice. Um, maybe we go to a different dimension. Maybe we we are reborn. Who knows? And I know that the atheists listening to this are probably going to think, oh, Troy, you're not a very good atheist at all. I think it's probably the end, but I really don't know. What about you, Brian? You're a little bit more spiritual than I am, aren't you? I don't know. Look, I, I think that sums up my response, actually, is I don't know. For me, look, if I, if I die and it's the end, I'm not going to know any difference. So what's it matter? If it's not the end, well, I certainly, like you, Troy, do not believe in hell because I do not believe in the stories of the Bible. So just that, stories. And um, I, I certainly wouldn't believe that if there there was a God, if that God created some people just to eternally torture, particularly if he is or she or they are a God that knows and has always known and will forever know, then they're a f- cruel fucker and they've got 
problems. So for me, that just doesn't make sense. And that's the cognitive dissonance stuff that I think that I um, can only see out the other side of it. But you try and reconcile that as a Christian, you go, oh, no, no, he does that because he had to do that because, you know, we're, we're all born sinful and yeah, crock of shit. So for me, whatever. Look, if, if it's the end, it's the end. If it's not, it's not. Um, I've always felt a sense of the other, whatever that other is. If it's there and it's good, then let's party. Otherwise, let's rot away. <laughs> Otherwise, let's rot away. Otherwise, worm food. Yeah, well, I have, I, you know, the body, the body is the body. Look, I've, I've, I've been with several people as they've died now, a couple of those family members, and one of them was my father and one was my niece. And it, it's just an experience you never forget. And it's those times that I've looked personally at that experience and what I've, I've felt, and yes, feelings can lie, but I've always felt that there's, there's just something. It's you, you, Your body goes, but it's your body changes. The, the look of it changes. Everything changes very quickly after you die. And for me, that sort of sits with maybe, maybe a part of you has gone somewhere. Is that your soul? I don't know. I, I have no idea. So in the end, I come full circle and say, I don't know. Yeah, I agree. Okay, the next question is for you, Brian. When you first started deconverting, did you ever catch yourself praying or saying, in Jesus' name, out of habit? No. However, I do have a, um, a little bit of a funny story about this. I used to work in court. So I, I represented people under 18 in court as a representative of the government. So it was, it was kids that have been charged with stuff and I would sit with their um, their lawyer and the lawyer would be asked a question from the magistrate and then I would be asked a question, particularly if the kid had a history of offending, um, you would get up, you would say, oh, well, you know, this, this young person has had a bit of a shitty life and, you know, this has happened, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, we can work with them to work on that. Anyway, this day I hadn't been, I reckon it was probably five or six kids had gone through. I hadn't been asked a question from the magistrate. So I was just drifting off and the magistrate said, all I could hear was this voice going, Mr. Mr. McDowell, Mr. Mr. And asking my name. And I, I stood up and I was, oh, sorry, Lord. And so it was a little bit of a, a little bit of a faux part and everybody bowed as I walked out of the courtroom that today and, and said, oh, Lord, Lord. They had no idea that I was coming from some habitual place. So you, were talking, you were talking to Jesus. I was yeah. talking to Jesus, yeah. I was, You're I was talking to God, back. yeah. I don't know if you realise then, but you just used your last name. I did. Um, I, I'm, I'm okay with that if you want to because I'm happy to say, well, my last name's Waller and on we go. Yeah, I don't care. I think yeah. most people know now. because Yeah, that's right. Okay, Mr. McDowell. Very good. <laughs> I'm, I'm totally fine with that. But never, never in Jesus' name out of habit. Did you? Yeah, I did. When I decided I wasn't a Christian anymore, but I still possibly believed in God, I would still pray. And I'd get to the end and I just felt like I had to go, in Jesus' name, amen. You know, that's what you do. So there was a couple of times, yeah, where I, I was like, oh, yeah. And I'd yeah, I, I don't know that I ever did it by accident, but I think I was very aware that that was the next thing to say, and you sort of have to go, I'm in, or whatever you say. It's a bit of a full stop, isn't it? It's a bit of a full stop. All right, next question coming at you from Kerry. 
Kerry has a comment. So do you think it's possible, which I, I think is a question. Yeah, I think so too. I think, <laughs> so, yeah. this, is a, this is more of a comment than a question. Actually, you're wrong. So sorry, Kerry, you have a comment that is a question. But do you think it's possible for people to deconstruct, to stay in a relationship and be happy where the other partner has not deconstructed and is still a fundamentalist Christian? The answer to that is obviously yes. I don't think it oftentimes is easy. But there's much evidence to support that. You remember when we were in church, there was oftentimes someone whose partner was, you know, at home and didn't come and possibly didn't believe anymore. Yeah, so it happens all the time. It does. And, uh, I mean, I don't think so much as a, a fundamentalist, but David Ames, a graceful atheist, is an atheist and his wife is still very much a Christian. He talks about that. I don't think she's a fundamentalist. But still, look, it'd be tough. It'd be tough, but people do do it. And good on them. I don't think I could have. All right. Here's another question for you. And this is from Linda. Linda threw this one up on Facebook, by the way. And she says, what has doing this, and, and we've sort of answered some of this already, but let's let's answer it anyway. What has doing this podcast and leading the online communities taught you about yourselves? A lot. It, it causes a lot of self-reflection and you can self-reflect in a very genuine way and learn a lot or you can not do it in such a genuine way. We've both chosen to do it in a very genuine way, which I think hurts to a point sometimes. But look, it, it makes you reflect on who you are, why you are, who you are, some of the decisions you've made, what were the motivators behind that, all those sort of things. And the online community, I mean, look, it teaches me a lot about the different experiences of people and how it affects them. I mean, some of that stuff that, as we've mentioned before, we've got, you know, around 800 people in our Facebook group and it never ceases to amaze me. People's stories of tragedy but also of courage and coming out the other side that these people they're survivors they're survivors of what has been an incredibly abusive situation and we're doing something with this podcast to help them to help them contextualize it to help them know that they're not crazy that they're being subject to a really really shitty and often abusive system and that we've brought people together around that that commonality of their experiences to be able to help each other help each other process it, but also help each other in going, hey, this worked for me, or I connected with this these people and they helped me. So lots of that stuff happens. How about you, Troy? As I said before, I started to reflect on why I joined in the first place. And this stuff that we've been dealing with has brought a lot of things up for me and my anxiety got quite severe and I went to see a therapist and started doing the EMDR. And the one thing that she was showing me is that a lot of these issues that I had with the church were because of family dysfunction or deficits in myself because of my family. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm saying, oh, and I blame them and they're terrible. And No, I, I have a wonderful relationship with, with my mum and dad, you know, up until my mum passed away and still with my dad, love them, adore them. And we forgave each other for shit in the 90s, long before I left church, or maybe even not too far before I left church. So still bringing those up, though, it's not about blame. It's not about having issues with with my mum and my dad, but seeing, oh, because I felt this way, that sort of led me as a 13-year-old to do this and open myself up to that. And I could see that 
sounds very Freudian, but a lot of my issues with the cults were because of deficit in in my family and, you know, my relationships with my brothers, my relationship with my mum and dad and things that I felt as a kid and processed those as a kid and didn't always make the best decisions. So seeing that the the authoritarianism, my my response to the authoritarianism has even spilled over into the way I do things at work now and, and the way I trigger at work because of the way I was rejected within church. And so it's it's taught me a lot of things and the therapy's been really good. And I really thought most of that had already been processed. I really thought, okay, I'm just going to make this podcast and I'm going to help other people. Turns out doing a lot of help for myself. Yeah, it's it's shown me a lot about myself and it's shown me a lot about my family of origin and how that sort of primed me and prepped me to be a religious fundamentalist, even though I wasn't raised in it, which is crazy. Yeah, which I reckon would be a, a commonality. It would be great to do some longitudinal study of those in the fundamentalist groups and see those similarities. I reckon they would be there. All right, this one's for you and this is from Joe. And Joe... I think Joe and Kerry must have got together because they, they question whether it's a question and then answer and then come back and it's a question. So thank you, Joe. But I don't know if this is a question, but when I was in the fold, so much focus was on saving souls. But I also wondered, what about the people that have walked away from God, those backsliders? It's like they were always in the too hard basket for Christians. It's like let go and save those who haven't got any idea as it's easier. So maybe my question is, what were people's church experience of trying to win back people for God? So how were we to re-save people? I have always loved having continuity in my relationships. So I wasn't very good at shunning or cutting people off. Um, And that was one of the things that led me out of the Revival Centre. I didn't like the way that we were told to cut people off. And remember I told the story about the Maoris that left and went to the CRC and I just kept seeing them. Or after I left, I went and tried to hang out with my Revival Centre friends and got upset when they rejected me as if it was like, what What are you doing? So I always was big on trying to bring people back. Um, A lot of, when I was in the AOG, a lot of the Revival Centre people that had left, I was trying to bring them into the AOG. Not well, partly because I thought I'd found the truth again, but also because I love people and I wanted to bring those people back into my life. And so still to this day, the majority of my friends that were in the church have now left. I, I can't really connect with the ones that are that are still in there. But yeah, I was always trying to to win them back, always trying to make sure they were okay. But I was also aware that you could leave and life goes on and you could still be a Christian or, or you could still be a good person. That was never an issue for me. And I think that's, you know, that was my heart to use Pentecostal language. My heart was that people were good, basically, and especially my friends. And I love my friends. So yeah, I was always trying to win them back, but not so much trying to you know, win them back because I was worried about their eternal soul because they knew the story, they knew the drill. I just wanted to have people back in my life and continue to be friends. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? I, I, I don't think I was ever one to try win back souls because I was shit at it in the first place because um, I was always too afraid to actually admit that I believed the crap that I believed. So, But one thing about me is, and, and lots of people have reflected this back to me, is I often feel a real responsibility if I'm in a room of people or chairing a meeting 
to have everyone involved and for everyone to feel valued and connected and part of of what's happening. So if I see someone at a, a party who is looking a bit awkward and they're by themselves and maybe bouncing from one or two people, I'll, I'll always go up. You mean like us at the Podcast Awards? <laughs> yeah, that's right. A little bit like us. No one came up to us. Yeah, because we weren't, we weren't media people and they all were and they were all dressed up and it was full on, wasn't it? It was full on. But but I'll always go up to people and, and try and make sure that they, they feel connected and feel part of what's happening because I hate seeing it. It actually makes me feel quite sad, um, but also it, it makes me feel awkward as well. So maybe there's a bit of selfishness in it. If I had have been able to harness that back then and um, try and win back souls, it would have been different. But I, I didn't care whether people had left church or not. Very similar to you, Troy. I mean, I wasn't phased. It was, and maybe it was the the root of that was that I didn't truly believe it. I think that's what I just keep coming back to. Maybe I never truly believed it. I think the root of it for me was that I didn't really want to be in a cult. So I was quite happy to hang out with people after they left. Hey, look, the next question is from Judy, and there's a little bit for me and a little bit for you. So I'm going to read it out. And she says, Troy, was your ex-wife concerned about soul ties as the reason she thought she was just a little closer to the Jesus mark than you? I must admit, I was a little guilty of being like that too. So that's the first part of the question. And then, so I'll answer that, Brian, and then I'll read the rest of it, which is what she asks you. I think there was, at the risk of overstepping here i think there was there was an arrogance there of you know i was born into the church and you're just a dirty sinner and and i look i bought into that mentality too you know i used to think about people that were slaves and made into royalty and people that were born into royalty that's how i in my mind used to think about the people that were saved into the church or born into the church and so i think there was an a bit of an elevation there in terms of soul ties, she came from a very super Spiro family, as we used to say, super Spiro, which means for those of you listening, that means very spiritual, super spiritual. And so there were probably was a bit of that as well. So I would imagine that her family had probably prayed and cut all the soul ties before they allowed her to marry me in case I passed all my soul ties over to her. And I, I should actually stop and say, for those of you that are listening that don't know what we're talking about, there's this belief that when you have sex with someone, you connect your soul to their soul and all the curses and demons go backwards and forwards. And it's kind of like a cell regeneration or, you know, when cells split and become twins, it's like that, except with demons and curses and things. So when you have sex with someone, you you, you buy into all that. So I, I would imagine that part of it was was that, but I think there was also a bit of an arrogance, you know, it's like us and them. And even as we know within church, there was us and there was more us and less us even inside the church. So, yeah, I, I think she definitely did look down on me. Um, I don't think she would now, of course. She, you know, I, I think she's she's grown past that. But for what it's worth, I bought into that mentality a bit myself and self-deprecated. Better than self-defecating. Well, this is true because then you have to change your pants. Now, the next half of this question, Brian, is this. Brian, I'm very curious about your thoughts as a counselling professional on this. Is it just another bat to hit each other and ourselves with? Or do you think that there's a darker attempt to control the flock by keeping us ashamed? Uh, look, firstly, I just want to correct it. I'm, I'm definitely not a counselling professional. I'm, I'm a social worker and social workers go, I'm not a counsellor. 
um, I look at systems and look at changing systems and how they affect people. However, you do do some counselling as a social worker, but I'm not a professional counsellor and I'm well out of touch on that because it's been a long time since I've actually done it. However, is it another bat to hit each other with? Look, I, I don't. I think it is a bat that we we do hit each other with. Uh, I, I think it's something that we we get shamed about. We shame each other. We shame ourselves. Uh, purity culture definitely drills into this and says that you know save yourself till marriage, have sex with just one person for the rest of your life. <laughs> Boring. And, you know, it says do all that stuff and I think we hit each other over the head with it. I mean, we do it to each other and that's when I say we, it's uh, the royal we is in the church and certainly I'm not part of that. So, yeah, I, look, I don't think it's a darker attempt to control necessarily generally speaking, but I am absolutely certain that many use it to control people. Many use it to control their movement, you know, keeping young people safe and all that sort of stuff. And it is most certainly used to keep people within the flock, but I don't think it's a broad brush tactic that the church necessarily uses with intention, but it's very, very convenient. All right, next one is from Carol. And Troy, it's coming your way. My question is for those who weren't born into the church or who went in as a teenager or adult. That's us. That's us. Yeah, yeah. totally. What's been the impact on your family relationships? My niece was successfully targeted and saved in inverted commas by a narcissistic Pentecostal youth pastor when she was 15 years old. Well, Definitely, as a teenager, the revival centers drove a wedge between myself and my family, especially my parents. Remembering, though, that I was saying I didn't necessarily feel that I quite fit in my school at the time and with everybody around me. And I think it was probably true, maybe more just being a normal teenager, but I think I felt that a little bit with my family at times too. Yeah, the, the, I, I stopped believing my parents, I stopped believing that they knew what was best for me and that the church did instead. And it's interesting because I see my two kids now and the way that they reach out to me, we have a really good relationship, my, my two teenagers, and they will come to me and they'll ask me questions and I'll give them their answers, give them answers that I think are true and, and they'll listen to me. But I don't think I did that. I don't think I even went to my parents. I think I had a more sort of Bart and Lisa Simpson relationship with Homer that I just thought my parents don't know. And I think a lot of that was the church, possibly a little bit of media too, you know, sort of fed that idea that your parents don't know. But I don't see that in my kids, my own kids now. I see that they sometimes think I'm full of shit, definitely, because sometimes I am and sometimes I am wrong and I would hate for them to just, you know, listen to everything I say. But I know I have an authority in their lives, but not from an authoritarianism, but just because we have trust and love. and so. Yeah, I think I was robbed of that by the church. I think I was robbed of the potential of that relationship. Ripped off. What about you? Um, yeah, look, the impact on my family, I, I mean, I was a bit older. I was 17, as I've said many, many times. So I, I think the impact on my family relationships was, at the start, was quite damaging. I remember when I came back after I'd converted to Christianity, I'd, I'd been on a holiday, I came back, and I spoke about this in my conversion story, that my dad was like, oh, this is bullshit. Why are you involved in this bullshit? And, and my dad didn't really even want to talk to me. Not that he did 
want to talk to me a great deal before that. He wasn't the greatest communicator, but he was completely shut down from it. And I saw this with my brother, who was the first one to convert to Christianity in my family. Whenever he would call, we'd all go, no, I don't want to talk to him because you knew he'd preach to him. You knew he'd preach, and I had no interest. My dad would go, no, no, or he'd jump on the phone and he'd go, I told you, I told you I don't want it, and he'd pass the, the phone to someone else. So it definitely damages those relationships. But I, I think it's difficult too, and we we have someone in the group that reaches out to us who is someone who works with survivors of, of family violence, domestic violence, and those bystanders who do try and jump in all the time and and rescue people quite often aren't the ones that get listened to or connect with. And it's a really difficult thing because I did have people in my family saying to me, people who never became Christians, saying, what are you doing? Like, this is rubbish. This is absolute crap. And one of my sisters has recently started listening to the podcast. And she, I, I said, said to her, look, don't necessarily share it with A and B siblings because they're still very much in the fold and it'll cause too many issues. But I was I was saying, oh, it'd be good to hear your perspective as a, a bystander. She goes, well, fuck, I have been a bystander for many years watching all you guys. So there was, um, you know, there's some people who've stayed in the fold for 30, 35 years in my family and uh, she remains a bystander. So it's dam- it damages relationships because it damages the depth of the relationship you can have with someone too. Like I even know the siblings of mine who are in the fold now, I do not have the depth of relationship with them that I could have with someone who's not out there because I know that the conversations I have with them, the connection points I have with them, the only things that they'll try and pick up on is a church experience and they try and bring that into every fucking conversation and I do not have the patience for it anymore. So, yes, I'm going to ease away from the microphone now before I hurt somebody. Okay, so next question. This comes from Peter and Peter has written an essay here, so I'm just going to sort of summarise bits and pieces But Peter comes from uh, an LGBT uh, lifestyle himself, um, and he says that he gets quite upset when he hears Christians bringing anti-LGBT arguments, but then he doesn't care when they say things like, oh, the earth is 6,000 years old. He said it just doesn't, doesn't bother him at all. He says, when I see a family member or a social media contact spreading anti LGBT, I get really defensive. So my question is, how to positively engage with the fundamentalist community without trying to be an ex-evangelical evangelist? Oh, that's a tough one. I, I don't know. I mean, that's, that sort of ties into what you just said then. It does, yeah. It's really hard. I, I, it is, and that's why well, it's a tough one. I, I don't – look, in short, I don't think you can. Part of it is you'll find allies within. My ex-wife and I, we knew – several people when we were in both evangelical scenes and more progressive churches later on in our journey, people found us and people who were gay would often come up to us and they'd disclose that they were struggling with their sexuality. And they'd say, I've told no one else about this before. I've told no one. And we we would quite often have several people who would tell us that because they, I think they just knew that we didn't care. And we'd, we'd say to them, you're still so-and-so and we still love you. And 
we'd, we'd cut off and say things like, well, why don't you live a homosexual lifestyle? I mean, we don't think God has a problem with it. So it was it was interesting. You will find allies within because I can still say that I had a very sincere Christian faith to a certain degree, even when I was saying those things. So I think find the right people if you want to connect in, but don't hang your hat on it. I mean, these are people that are stuck in a very archaic faith-based religion that for them I think it's it's very difficult to accept homosexuality as a genuine because it's demonic yeah that's right and and it, it is anti-christ it is anti-god the way they see it and we've had people reach out well I, I certainly have through this podcast and and say how can you guys say that, that people who are gay can still be Christians? Like that, that's a disgrace. It's disgusting. And I've challenged them. I said, well, how can people who are greedy, how can people who are pieces of shit to other people, how can people who are abusive, all of that, you know, because they're all the sort of things, not to mention Jesus says nothing about homosexuality. Sorry, burst your bubble. But he's, he, you know, if you still believe in Christianity and still hang your hat on Jesus as, as something that, that's true, then he says nothing about it. So you're going to have to find your truth somewhere else. What about you, Troy? Coming back to that point, I just think, you know, the Jesus who was hanging out with the prostitutes and the tax collectors and all that kind of stuff, you know, not that I'm equating gay people with 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 the dregs of society, but I'm just saying if you do believe the Christian message, then you would know that Jesus was accepting of people that maybe you don't think he would be. So that's just something to sort of throw out there. But coming back to Peter's question about should we be ex-evangelical evangelists. I was. Remember when I was angry? I mean, when Facebook first came along, I was just posting shit everywhere because I was just so pissed off. But it wasn't so much about trying to win people as much as pushing back because I felt so judged by them. But now, you know, 20 years, it's been what, 23, 24 years since I left church. I I don't have the energy. You know, I, I mentioned about seeing some people in the in the Burke Street Mall recently and going up and talking to them. And then I realized partway through, I, I don't have the energy for this. I really can't be asked. And so I just sort of walked away. So look, if you want to go for it, I don't think there's any right or wrong here, but I, I don't have the energy. I, you know, I, I can make a podcast, you know, that that's my way of reaching out to ex-evangelicals. But the thing is, and it was the same when I was in the AOG trying to reach people in the revival center, you're only going to reach the people that want to be reached. And that's a good thing. The people that want help, they want you to say, hey, can you help me sort out the wheat from the chaff? Could you help me with a framework to help sort through this? Great. you know. And, and I think that's what we're doing. I think that's what the Facebook group does. I think that's what the podcast does. But as to cold calling evangelicals to try and tell them that they're wrong, I think you're wasting your time. Yeah, I agree. You'll beat your head up against the wall. They'll make you try and feel bad about yourself and about any beliefs that you may have. So don't don't chase that rabbit. It'll just be a little bit too difficult. And you will find gay-affirming churches. You will find gay-affirming Christians. Put your energy into that place where you're going to be loved, not judged. Yeah, amen, brother. Yeah. Alrighty. So this is coming to our last question. So this is from Sarah. First, Sarah, thank you because you thank us for the podcast and a friend got you on to it and now you're addicted. So you can talk to someone about that addiction. So don't do it alone, Sarah. 
Sarah grew up in a CRC church in country New South Wales and deconstructed, which is a new term for her, which I think it is for, for many people, and has taken to a place in context of becoming a parent. Now, holding a newborn in my arms pretty much killed original sin for me. And my husband and I left the church when my son was a baby after realising we were not up for him being told guilt and shame, introducing nonsense. So anyway, now we're going to fast forward eight years. The son comes home from school, tells me some older boys told him they typed Eve into Google. It brought up a... Eve is in Adam and Eve. Yes, sorry. Eve, yes. It brought up a picture of a naked woman. So give me your phone, mum, because I want to see. Later, him and his brother had a phone and typed in Eve, often a hilarious discussion about how to spell it. And he is waiting for the results to load. And he says, show me the vaginas. Now, as someone who was raised in purity culture, I'm initially feeling proud that he has no shame associated with the emerging sexuality, but is quickly followed by a panic that I don't know what to do here. How do you parent without the framework you you were parented in? By the way, typing Eve into Google does not bring up anything R-rated, much to my boy's disappointment. So can we talk to this? What's your experience of parenting your kids outside of fundamentalism and how you navigated this? I understand you have a different upbringing to me. However, I'm sure you still have plenty to say. Troy? I do have plenty to say on this. I had a friend of mine who was ex-revival centre and then he was also Pentecostal, you know, mainstream Pentecostal, and he left as well. And he and I were, were mates and we were doing some of this sort of anti-revival centre work together and big hi to you, Peter. And he said to me that he had his kids watching Little House on the Prairie. Like he actually downloaded Little House on the Prairie and showed them episodes because he thought, oh, this is just going to bring them a, a kind of morality without being, you know, uber Christian. And that was his answer, right? And then as a family, they'd talk about them, I guess. For me, I went out of my way to make sure my kids knew that we didn't believe in God, we didn't believe in Jesus, and so I went to the other extreme. And so when they talked to me about God, I would say, "Yeah, well, I don't, I don't think so." And you know, they'd hear things at school, and now they're in a place where they don't believe in God themselves. I, I think both of them are open to the idea that there could be, but they they realise that we've been ra- they've been raised in a a non Christian non-religious household and they're okay with that and they're both really good kids and I don't just say that because they're mine they're both really good kids they're very smart they're very switched on they're very empathetic I think a lot of that stuff that we hear about gratitude practice and empathy and compassion and we my wife and I have both tried really hard to to promote that in the way that we've raised our kids. And I have absolutely zero regrets about doing it that way. I think that they are great kids. I'm so proud of them. I think in some ways they are better kids than I was, but my therapy has taught me I wasn't a bad kid. So I can say that now. I wasn't a bad kid. I didn't need saving, but either do they. And so, yeah, I, I'm, I'm really proud of them. And I, I think my wife and I have done a really good job. You know, that in itself is probably an episode, talking about parenting. And there's there's some people online that I know that we could probably get in to talk about this sort of, you know, deconstructed parenting. But Brian, what, what do you think? I think they're all really good points. And, uh, and I think for me, probably one of the most important things when I was raising my kids, even through my deconstruction journey was social justice and a connection to that so having my kids connected to that was 
at the time just as important for me as them being uh, in inverted commas Christian kids as we moved away from that space and Christianity took a back seat it all became about morals for me and morals and values are intrinsically linked but they're also just as much as a minefield outside of the church as they are in the church I think there's a lot of stuff to navigate I mean your, your kids they're going to grow up and have exposure to porn well is porn bad like you were you were taught that porn was bad in the church well there's ethical porn there's unethical porn you know there's many ethical things and there's many unethical things so navigating that stuff is is a minefield so i i think you know surround yourself with good people people that you do have similarities with but also some people that will challenge you i think it's really really important to be challenged because when you operate inside that bubble that you often did inside the church that's what fucks your kids up because they've got no reference point for something different. Like it's, you can be told anything, you're directed by the pastor or your leaders or whoever it may be around what morality is and around what values you should have. Challenge yourself, you know, read widely, read some good, you know, Steve Bidolf books, all that sort of stuff, which is talks about um, secular ways to bring up children. It, it doesn't have Christian roots. So Read some of that stuff, read some good parenting books, expose yourself to, to different things and most importantly, be kind to yourself because you will fuck up as a parent. I've got two adult children now and two teenage children now and you make mistakes all the time. Don't dwell on it. Move on, move forward because everyone screws up as a parent and you can't kick yourself too much for that. Learn from it and move forward. Yeah, look, I, I affirm my children a lot, but I did make a, a point of encouraging them to be good people, but not because of some sky ghost that's telling you these are the rules, but about being a good person, that it's really important to be a good person. I think that didn't really come too strongly from my parents, and I think there was a vacuum there, and that was one of the things that attracted me to church. So I think encouraging them to be good people, but letting them find how they express that and, you know, telling them to be aware of how this would impact, you know, what they're doing is going to impact the, the kids around them and as well as their family members and stuff and teaching them to, to watch out for other people and, and, and again, be compassionate, be grateful, you know, all those kinds of things. Yeah, I completely agree. We, we have the rules of don't be an asshole in our house and if the kids – do get into trouble at school. We look at the, the trouble they're in. Are they in trouble because they've just been stupid at school or are they in trouble because they've been nasty? And they'd certainly get in more trouble at home if they've been nasty rather than just being stupid. So it's I think they're, they're really important things. Well, Brian, that's our last question. It is. Why don't we have a quick chat about what we're going to be doing next year and how we think we're going to take the podcast. And when I say quick, I mean, let's keep it quick and talk about the break and when we're coming back. I, I think it's important that we don't so much talk about which people we're going to get on because we've learned that when we advertise and then things fall through. But I think it's interesting that we're going to, some of the things that we've got highlighted for next year, we're going to continue to focus on women in Pentecostalism or, or, you know, or even women in broader Christianity because we are two white males, two white privileged males sitting here doing a podcast. So we really want to continue to bring that voice in. Another thing that I think we want to do is we want to have a look at the clergy project, which is ministers who no longer believe 
and don't know what to do with themselves. Do they stay? Do they leave? Um, or maybe they've left and they've got no career. And that's a global project. Comes out of America, but it's a global project. So that's that's two off the top of my head that I think we're going to try and focus on next year. Yeah, look, I think we've we've spoken a fair bit about this, that we've got to a bit of a crossroads in our story. And uh, and I know I haven't spoken directly about my divorce and exact time of of leaving church, but that's, you know, we'll cover that next year. But I I think what we really want to concentrate on too is dive deeper into that deconstruction of, of how did we actually unpack all that stuff as it happened? And it's it was certainly not a planned process, and I don't think it can be a planned process. And quite often you'll find yourself in the middle of it and going, oh, I'm deconstructing, or look back 10 years later and go, oh, that's where I started deconstructing. But trying to, I guess, share some resources with people or some insight into some of that stuff and when it's happening, what you can look out for, where you can find resources to help you navigate it and hear from people also. We know that people love stories, so we want to bring people to tell their stories about that, tell their stories and show their scars for a reason, not just to show their scars, but to help people navigate it, to help people recognise and connect with that stuff and go, that was me, what did they do? Because I think that's really helpful too. I don't know about you, Brian, but the Bible was weaponized for me and that kept me tied up. You know, even my, my views of divorce were because of what I believed about the Bible. My views of leaving church and hell was because of what I believed about the Bible. So so many things. You know, for me, I was very much a textual Christian. It wasn't just about the experience. So one of the things I'd like to do next year is have a look at the Bible. You know, there's a lot of things that we've been told as Pentecostals or as fundamentalists that, you know, the Bible is this, the Bible is that, and this is true of the Bible, and that's true of the Bible, when actually that's just propaganda. And when you dig in, you find out that a lot of what we were told about the Bible is not true, both its its formation, its transmission, translation, all that kind of stuff. It may sound like a bit of a drag, but for me, that was quite important to undo. And so I think that's kind of a starting place that that I'd like to take us on, you know, next year in sort of unpacking the Bible and making sure that, you know, if we're going to believe a lot of what we were taught, then we just need to make sure that we've questioned the source. So that's that's something that I'd like to do next year. Yeah, I think it'd be good. And for those who have a bit of time over summer, go and listen to Ono, Ross and Carrie. They have a couple of episodes where Ross talks about the Christmas story and talks about the errors, the the things that you believed about the Christmas story that aren't actually in inconsistencies, the Bible. contradictions. They're not in the Bible. It's a great. They're a great couple. I think it's a couple of episodes. He talks about it. So pop on over there, do the gardening, put your headphones on, and listen to it. Um, I'm, I'm saying that because that's what I do. Yeah. Another thing too is you know we're happy to bring Americans in because you know that's the source of most of our Pentecostalism and fundamentalism, but it'd be really good to make sure that we keep having an Australian voice. That's a big part of what we do. You know, I was a teenage fundamentalist, was a uh, Australian Podcast Awards nominee. So we are very much Australians. So I think it'll be good to bring that Australian voice and to make sure that we protect that and keep that as the sort of dominant voice. Yeah, I completely agree. And and I, I do think the Australian context is a unique context within the Pentecostal church. Sadly, it is merging into something we see more around that 
conspiracy theory laden Pentecostal American experience, which I think it's shifting towards, unfortunately, but it still is a very unique experience. Yeah, and look, whether we actually go here next year or, you know, it happens in the years to come, because I think we've, you know, we'll never run out of content. But I'd like to talk about divorce as a topic, not just our experience of it, even death and hell. I think those are ones that we sort of need to unpack for people, if if not for ourselves. Now, Brian, unless you've got something else that you want to throw in, I would like to talk about what's coming directly next, which is we've got an episode that's going to be dropped on Christmas Day, which is uh, another podcast who's asked us to drop his episode on um, on Christmas Day. So I'll let you be excited for that to come out on Christmas Day. But really, we're going to stop now because we've already recorded that episode and someone else is, is doing it. So this is for us. We're going to put this down. We're going to put this down. We probably won't be back until very late Feb or early March. And that's really when we're planning to come back because we really need to put this down. And I don't know about you, Brian, but I'm not only ready for the break, I'm going to force myself to really take this break. And I'm actually going to step away from social media as well. So I think you'll find that our social media accounts will sort of go quiet, put them into hiatus as well. Definitely the Facebook group will continue. So please feel free to be a part of that. We've still got another Patreon First Fruits meeting to do. We have a video subscription for that so people can come together and we sort of talk. But other than those things, I think it'll just go into sleep mode and I encourage people to do the same. Take some time off from the podcast and and live a little. We will have repeats coming out through the summer break um, like we did last summer, but we won't. We certainly won't have any of the promotions and stuff around that. It'll just we'll just be dropping it just to keep content coming through the feed, and also because we like to sort of pick through a few of our favourites from the last twelve months and go, here you go, listen to those again. We enjoyed them, so we'll do that. But yes, we we will see you next year. Reach out. Look, I'll still be on socials, but we just might take. Well, I certainly will take a longer time to respond but I will be still in and out of the Facebook group I do love the Facebook group and there's some great people there and great conversations so I'll duck in and out there but I won't be in there as much as I usually am yeah and look for the sake of my mental health I think I just really need to take a break so I hope people can understand that that I'm just going to step away for the for the two or three months and take all the social media stuff off my devices and I, I think for me I need to really take a break and that's a totally fair call. And I am going to try take as much as of a break that I can. But I just want to say a big thank you to everyone. But also thank you to you, Troy. Thank you for a great year. It's been another fantastic year. I think it's something that we really do enjoy, but it does also take its toll. And it is a, a tricky one. So I think uh, the break will be good. But thank you to everyone for listening this year. It's been a big year. It's It's been um, this season has certainly seen our listenership absolute skyrocket and um, look forward to, to seeing how it all goes next year as we embark on season four. Who would have thought us ever saying season four? It's insane. I know we're going into the third year of the podcast and I still cringe when I go back and listen to the first season because it's just like, Ugh. but now uh, I'm, I'm really proud of the work we do. And I'll probably look back on this in a couple of years and cringe at this as well, but I'm really proud of the work we do. And I think, you know, this is a, a good thing. And I know that people listening think it's a good thing and let's just continue to talk. 
So everyone in the Southern Hemisphere, have an amazing summer. In the North, stay warm. Hopefully it's not too much of a cold winter. We shall see you soon. Yeah, we'll see you in 2023. See you later.